calling all conscious achievers who are seeking more community and connection, I've got an invitation for you. Join me at this year's Summit of Greatness, this September 7th through 9th in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio to unleash your true greatness. This is the one time a year that I gather the greatness community together in person for a powerful transformative weekend. People come from all over the world and you can expect to hear from inspiring speakers like Inky Johnson, Jaspreet Singh, Vanessa Van Edwards, Jen Sincero, and many more. You'll also be able to dance your heart out to live music, get your body moving with group workouts, and connect with others at our evening socials. So if you're ready to learn, heal, and grow alongside other incredible individuals in the greatness community, then you can learn more at lewishouse.com slash summit 2023. Make sure to grab your ticket, invite your friends, and I'll see you there. You want to stack the deck in your favor and design an environment or join groups and tribes where your desired behavior is normal, where your desired behavior is easy, but it's going to be so much more productive and easy to stick to the habit because you're in a space and a context that's designed to support it. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone if you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more 
weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash greatness. netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. Welcome to this special masterclass. We brought some of the top experts in the world to help you unlock the power of your life through this specific theme today. It's going to be powerful. So let's go ahead and dive in. What are three to five non-negotiable habits that every human being should, and if they could do on a daily basis, it would improve their lives and everyone's life around them? What are those non-negotiable habits on a daily basis we should do? Yeah, three habits that would improve everybody's lives on a daily basis. It's so hard to give an answer like that because obviously everybody's you know dealing with different stuff. But there are a few things I think I do genuinely think most people would benefit from. So um, the easy answer would be, uh, or the easy way to frame this would be reading, but I don't think it actually has to be reading books. I think it just is the, the habit of learning something new. So if you, you know, listening to podcasts, reading a book, watching a good YouTube video, whatever, it doesn't matter what version of that it is. But if you go to bed a little bit smarter than you were when you woke up, that's going to improve your life. And just having this thirst for lifelong learning, having an eagerness to uh, learn or discover something new each day, it's going to pay off in a huge way in the long run, no matter what topics you're interested in. So a habit of some small habit of daily learning, let's just call it learn something new for 10 minutes each day. Um, some sort of physical activity, uh, you know, this is, I think, an important um, realization about all habits, which is in most areas of life, there might not be a thousand ways to do something, but there's almost always more than one way. And, you know, I like working out in the gym, but not everybody wants to train like a bodybuilder and that's fine. You know, like you can kayak or go running or rock climbing or ride a bike or whatever. There's like a bazillion ways to live an active lifestyle and you should choose the version of your habits that is most exciting to you. Like in a, in a way, that's the first biggest hurdle to clear when you're building habits is have you selected a habit that you're genuinely interested in, that you're actually engaged with? Because if it's something that you actually care about, there are going to be like endless opportunities for improvement. If you're not actually care, if you don't actually care about it, if you're just doing it because you kind of feel like society's encouraging you to do it, or your parents want you to do it, or your peers are kind of subtly saying, hey, this is something you should do then even the obvious improvements are going to feel like a chore, you know? So let's call it uh, 10 minutes of learning something new, uh, some sort of physical activity, whatever is exciting or interesting to you. And then I think the other one is uh, a process, a habit of reflection and review. So it's very easy in life to be so busy or working on stuff heads down um, or just have the next task come up, whether it's things you got to do for your kids or responsibilities at work that you never take even five minutes to step back and just breathe and ask yourself, am I working on the right thing? You know, am I directing my attention and energy to the highest and best use? And boy, there is nothing so wasteful as working hard on the wrong thing. You know, like so many people work really hard, but are you directing your energy and attention to the best spot? And so um, the only way to discover that, like, I know I'm not smart enough to figure it out on the first time. Like, I can't, I can't just sit down, give me five minutes and be like, oh, this is exactly what I should be focused on. 
it takes iteration. It takes refinement. It takes a process of reflecting and reviewing and looking back on the previous day and be like, Hey, was that a good way to spend my time? Like, did I live a good life today? And the more that you do that, the more you start to course correct. And the other tricky thing, and the reason this needs to be a habit that you revisit consistently, I don't necessarily think it needs to be daily, but consistently is the answer changes over time. You know, like what you want shifts over time, the situation you're in or the resources you have, or the time you have shifts over time. And so you need to keep coming back to this. Maybe it's every week, maybe it's once a year, but whatever it is, you need a chance to reflect and review and to try to ask yourself, is there a better way to do this? Am I working on the right thing? Am I working on what actually matters? Um, am I directing my attention and energy in the highest and best mm -hmm. way? Yeah. And how, how important is accountability then in your mind when we are taking on these new habits for ourselves? Is it important to have self-accountability, buddy accountability, coach accountability, you know, social accountability? Uh, do those support habits, uh, forming these consistent habits? And what other factors are in play there? They definitely support them um, or or hinder them potentially, depending on the the people you're around and the you know the group that you're part of. Ultimately, the form of accountability that matters the most is self accountability. It's almost impossible to exceed the standards that you have for yourself. Like that almost always sets the baseline. You know, if your your beliefs or your standards are almost always going to be the limit on what you allow yourself to do or what you accept. Now, it's easier to stick to high standards in a supportive environment than it is in a, uh, an unsupportive one. So there are a lot of things that can influence whether you want to maintain that standard, but ultimately the standard you hold yourself to is going to be the most important thing. Now, having said that, I do think that the social environment, the tribes that you belong to influence your habits in a really dramatic way. So if I had to pick one topic that I think is even more important now than I realized when I was writing the book. I would probably say the social environment. You know, we're all part of multiple tribes. Some of those tribes are like really large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be Australian. Some of those tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of the local CrossFit gym. But all of those tribes, large and small, they have a set of expectations. You know, they have a set of social norms. They have a set of beliefs that, hey, this is how you act in this group. This is what's normal and expected. And the more that your habits align with the expectations of the group, the easier it is to stick with them, the more like appealing and attractive they are because they signal to the people around you, Hey, look, I belong to, you know, like I'm part of this. And the more that they go against the grain of the tribes that you belong to, the harder they are to stick to because you start to get criticized for them. And if people have to choose between, you know what? I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in. I belong. I'm part of something. Or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. I mean, the desire to belong will often overpower the desire to improve. You know, belonging will, will the loneliness will lose to belonging. And so you need to get those two things aligned and join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. It is so true. And it doesn't mean you can't make it happen. There's a great example that, that came up this week. Someone on my team on our team call said, uh, I asked I asked everyone on the call, I said, what is one thing you wanna let go of next year for your life? Like what's one thing that's not serving you right now that you wanna let go of? 
And this person said, I want to let go of drinking, drinking alcohol, like, or at least drinking as frequently as I do with the social circles that I'm in. And um, I thought that was interesting because I've never been drunk in my life. I don't drink. It's not, it's not a part of my identity, right? I never did it from sports. And then in, after sports, I was just like, why? It didn't make sense to me. Nothing good or bad about it. It just wasn't fitting my values personally. I have other problems, which is sugar, right? It's like I've got that. That's my vice, right? So uh, no judgment here. But I was just like, this never stopped for me, you know, in every – until maybe in the last four or five years where anytime I'd go out in college, after college, then in the business world, restaurants, networking events, like all that stuff – People would always try to influence me to drinking, and so I had to be I, I had to be so firm in my beliefs and really just not even care at all about it that I just knew that people were going to try to influence me. They would try to say a joke. They'd be I can't believe you never drank. All these different things. Try to get me to drink for the first time. All this stuff. I knew it would happen every single week, and I just realized okay, this is going to happen no matter what type of circles I'm in, unless I find people that do not drink, which is very rare. And which is one of the reasons why with my girlfriend, when we started dating, I was like, listen, it's not going to work. If you like to drink, I don't think I can date you. Like, doesn't mean you're a bad person. I just don't want to be in that environment for the rest of my life uh, with the person I'm choosing to be with. And so I had to make a conscious decision. And she was like, well, it, I don't really need it. Like, maybe I drink a glass of wine once a month. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But if this is a weekly thing, like, it's just not going to work because I've chosen this to be a high priority of my value for my life. And um, it's it's very challenging if there's something you want to do and the people around you are influencing you the other way in terms of accountability. So I think it's it doesn't mean you can't do it, but choosing to be around people or groups or tribes, like you mentioned, that are supportive, even if it's the local CrossFit gym or whatever it might be, find those communities as much as possible. You know, if your family isn't as supportive, find these other micro tribes to support you in that habit form. There's this whole chapter in Atomic Habits. Uh, it's called The Secret to Self-Control. And one of the surprising things that I came across when I was researching the book is a lot of these self-control studies, we typically will like kind of the standard story we all tell is, oh man, I wish I had the discipline of that person, or I wish I was, you know, as consistent as this professional athlete or whatever. But in fact, um, the people who exhibit the highest self-control are often the people who are tempted the least. That's like the predominant right. pattern that is common across those different contexts is that they Don't are put just cookies not in your house. You're not going to eat them. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, you want to stack the deck in your favor and design an environment or join groups and tribes where your desired behavior is normal, where your desired behavior is easy. And if you do that for yourself, Sure, you'll still have to put effort in, um, but it's going to be so much more productive and easy to stick to the habit because you're in a space and a context that's designed to support it. And that's maybe one of the biggest hacks or strategies for building better habits is worry a little bit less about having superhuman willpower and worry a little bit more about designing an environment where you don't need willpower at all. You did something really smart, which I think a lot of people aren't willing to do. You spent... 10 years writing every week in an incredible article or articles that were so detailed, so thought out, so researched. And you said, how can I serve the maximum number of people in my niche and then start branching out in the space as well and do it consistently over a decade? 
without really making a lot of money, you know, selling other things. And then you came out with a book. And now this doesn't happen for everyone, but you, then you came out with a book and it became, you know, a uh, one of the best-selling books of the year, or the most-selling book of last year on Amazon, like you said, top five, I think, this year as well. And it just continues to add value to people. And I think it's a testament to what you created for a decade plus of adding value. So congratulations on everything, man. Yeah, thank you. That's very, very nice of you to say. It's been a wild ride. I, there are a couple things going on there. Like I do try to operate with this core value of always give value before you ask for value. And if you think about in any business, but like in my business, at writing books, the amount of um, what it costs a reader or what it costs a customer is not just how much they have to pay for the book. It's also how much time they have to spend reading it or finding it and so on. And whatever that total cost is, time plus money, that's like the amount they have to pay. And then whatever I get paid um, is what I make. But what they get in return should be like well in excess of that. So like the value they get minus the time and money they spend, there's some surplus there. And we could call it whatever, but I like think about it as like goodwill. And I always want to have a surplus of goodwill. Um, and so everything that I create, whether it's an article or a newsletter or a, the book, I want people to be, to have this feeling that it's like, oh my gosh, I get so much out of this. Of course I would want to open the next email, or of course I would want to buy the book. It's like such an obvious win for me. So I always try to give value before I ask for value. And I don't think that there's any one way to do this. Like you could start with the book and not have an audience, for example, but the way that I did it is I wanted to focus on building the audience first, building the platform first, give as much value as possible, get the audience as large as possible. And then I was able, you know, I didn't have any credentials, right? Like I don't have any background for, and there was no reason for me to get a book deal. I was just a guy with a blog. Um, and the only reason that any of the publishers in New York met with me is because I spent that time building the email list and developing the audience. And then that got my foot in the door and got the book deal. And then of course you have to execute well on that and create something valuable. And then, you know, ultimately the book being a hit was sort of just all this potential energy that had been built up for two years or five years or whatever. And then it being released when, when the book came out. So I, in a large, to a large degree, I kind of think that's the hardest thing about writing books is all the mm -hmm. work is up front. You know, you have so to work. build the audience and write it and edit it and uh, make the marketing plan and start to record interviews and execute on that. You have to do all of that stuff before you sell a single copy. And most people are just not willing to delay gratification that long. You know, I mean, it's probably depending on how you measure it. Atomic Habits took somewhere between like three and six years. Um Definitely at least three years, because that's how long it was from when I got the book deal. But I was doing a lot before I even got the book deal. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a long time to work on something without making a cent from it. <laughs> and so uh, if you're willing to do that, then you can get a great result. You will set yourself up for so much more financial peace over financial pain in yeah. the future. But you got to be willing to face the fear of judgment of what people think about you yeah. in order to do this, especially early on when you make these tough decisions. And that's so hard. So hard. And, and you're so right, because we've all been there, every single person. And you know, I remember, you know, I was supposed to be a doctor, like I was saying. You're such a failure, man. You yeah. Know? You're well, such a failure <laughs> being a, a lawyer and a and real you know, estate agent and an investor. Imagine hearing that though, when you don't have anything, right? I know, man, it's and, scary. And I, before I got it, so I, 
in between, I also started a sock company. Yeah. I, I'm, the only way I learned was by doing things. And I was supposed to be a doctor. And now people know me because I'm selling socks. And, you know, people have these high expectations for you. They, oh, Dustin is going to be a doctor. I was a sock salesman. <laughs> and now imagine going to these parties, right? And, and Indian um, aunties, they have this, like, the gossip culture they is love horrible. They to judge and, and, and gossip. And yeah, and so, you know. Critique. Going to, and, and they'll say it to your face, oh, so you're selling socks now? And then they don't just tell you. They tell your parents. Everyone. They tell your grandparents. And, you know, it's a... And now you start hearing from every single person around you. Why are you throwing away the sacrifice that your parents made? Your parents gave up everything to come to this country. So you could have a chance to be a doctor. And you're throwing it away because you want to do this dumb thing called entrepreneurship. Oh, man, the shame around that must be tough. And and, and now you have nothing to show for it. And you're failing at the thing. And you're failing. That you're trying. And you're screwing up. And you have no idea. Like, you just have this vision. that, like You know, when I'm 65 and I look back at my life. 75, 85, whatever year you want to put on. Let's just say 100. Hopefully we can make it there. We look back at life. What are you, like, are you going to be upset that you tried and failed? Or are you going to be upset that you never gave it a shot? Mm-hmm. And I remember that was like what I kept telling myself. I was like, look, I'm going to be old one day, hopefully. And I'm going to look back at life. And that's when I'm going to say, you know, am I happy that I tried and screwed up? Yeah. Or am I happy that I never tried? One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. In person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And here's the thing. Pain is the price of admission for greatness. Yeah. 
And we just have to ask ourselves, what type of pain do I want to experience? Do I want to experience pain of not doing anything and then feeling unhealthy and sick and, you know, bankrupt because I didn't take action and I was afraid and the pain comes to me later? Or do I want to put myself through controlled pain by facing the insecurity, by facing the fears, by doing the the challenging things consistently with my health, with my finances to set myself up for more peace in the future? Yeah. Either way, we're going to experience pain. 100%, man. But the controlled, conscious, daily, consistent pain is the price of admission for (laughs) greatness. And we've got to be willing to lean into that if we want to have something in your life that feels like peace. But you know the biggest drug that holds us back from doing that? Comfort. I know, We get comfortable. And it becomes a drug. And we get addicted to this idea of, I need my health care. I need my steady salary. I need my 401k. I need these things to feel mm-hmm. safe. I need my lattes every day. I need, yeah. you know, <laughs> and and those are the things that then hold us back from then following and doing something else because we can create a million excuses. Right? It's easy to make excuses for why I had the side hustle idea, I had this business idea, I want to go start investing, I want to do something. It's easy to make excuses. Oh, I don't have a million dollars. My parents didn't give me a million dollars. Oh, I don't have rich parents. Oh, I look a certain way. Look, man, you know, it's excuses are easy. Yeah, and this is where now, look, sometimes we go through real problems. Like mental health is a real problem. If you are struggling, you, you can't get up because you're depressed, yeah. you're anxious. Okay, let's start with that, right? You can't build a business right. when you can't even get out of bed. So now you break it down. Okay, if I'm struggling mentally, you got to get that taken care of first. Go spend whatever it costs, do whatever it takes, start working on that. Pain creates purpose, right? And now you you can then start to work towards something else and then you start work, but you got to get away from that comfort drug yes. and understand, you know what? Sometimes you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. I had this talk with me. So it's kind of, <laughs> this is funny. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but I, I remember I used to go through like the worst case scenario. I was like, worst case, worst, worst case. My parents kicked me out of the house. Uh, I make no money. I'm homeless. Yes. What's the big deal? Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can make that work. I, I'm like, can I make it work? And, and so, a funny kind of segue from that is later on, I went and started a, uh, I co-founded a community service organization. And we did a lot of, or do a lot of help. We call it SEVA, which is uh, a Sikh word. I'm from the Sikh faith, S-I-K-H. That's the name of the religion. Uh, and SEVA is a fundamental tenant, which means selfless service. Mm. And so one of the things that we do was we would do a lot of things in the city of Detroit to help people there primarily homeless people. And kind of as a joking idea, kind of as like a serious thing, I I told uh, co-founders, I was like, hey, you know, we're doing a lot of things for homeless people here, but we don't know what they're going through. Why don't we try being homeless? Mm. And and I like doing kind of different things and putting myself through it. And so a couple of guys were like, yeah, let's try it. And so, um, you know, I know I can never experience real homelessness because I know I have a home, I have a family, I have have that comfort that I knew I was going to go back to. But for four days, we slept on the streets of Detroit. We had $15 a person. Um, and wow. we're going to figure it out. And to kind of prepare myself, I didn't shower for a week but leading up to it. And no, we just tried it. And this is where now, you know, you put yourself in uncomfortable situations. For me, I kind of try to do that because it gives you new perspectives, yes. new ways of thinking. And people call me crazy and all this stuff all the time. But I, I kind of... 
it makes sense to me now because I want I don't do things the way everybody else does. I don't see the world everybody else mm-hmm. does. And I want to try things the way I can see the world from different places. Like we were talking about before, people with different opinions. I look for that. Yes. Most people, like especially in this political climate, if you disagree with me, block, turn yeah. you off. Talk to me. I want to hear what you have to say. We don't have to agree, but I want to learn from you. And that's where wisdom comes from is when you can listen to two different points of view and then come up with your own analysis. Like when we talk about stock market investing, I'm going to tie this back to finances. When people talk about how do you know if it's a good company to invest in, like one of the things that we talk about is, and I talk about on YouTube, is listen to people's opinions about a company. But don't just listen to one side's opinions. Listen to people that think that the stock is going to the moon. Listen to people who think that the stock is going down. Gosh, yeah. And now you have both perspectives. Because if you just listen to people that say nothing is going to go wrong, you're going to be in this euphoric state of, I'm going to buy everything. But you have to put things in perspective and understand there's two sides to everything. Mm-hmm. Being willing to, again, it's uncomfortable, right? Especially when you firmly believe something. And then you hear somebody telling you that you're completely wrong, that you're an idiot, that you're a fool. It makes you a little uncomfortable. Yes. But being willing to make yourself uncomfortable can teach you a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's, we're talking about saving money, but yes. it all kind of ties in together of knowing now, being willing to handle that judgment because that is hard, man. Huge, man. It is hard. Huge. Which then brings us to then protecting yourself, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's a few different things here in protecting yourself and protecting your money. And what's the fourth one? Spend, grow, save. So, oh, wait, we completely skipped earning. Earning. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. We can't skip. That's the most fun one, man. <laughs> wow, I'm sorry for that. So earning now is you built a system, 75, wow. 15, 10. Every time you make money, some of your money is being spent, some of your money is being invested, some of your money is being saved. Now it's, I kind of like this financial education stuff. How can I amplify the system? You got to put more fuel on the fire. How do you do that? You need to earn more money. Now, this is where... Unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of people look for that quick and easy way. I mean, who doesn't want to get rich quick, right? It, it, that's, it's, it's very appealing. Right. The problem is most people who try to get rich quick end up losing and you end up paying somebody selling you a get rich quick service. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's very unfortunate, but that's, I mean, it's very easy to sell this idea of get rich quick. And this is where now understanding that, you know, we could go over systems of do these five things to build a million dollar business. But everything, everyone's going to be different. And sometimes you just got to be willing to put in the work. Yeah. And there's no bypassing that. But now it's understanding how you can work hard and work smart. Because most of us are taught that hard work is rewarded. And it is. But you have to complement this hard work with smart work. Like if the hardest people in America were compensated by their level of work, construction workers would be the highest paid people in America. Yeah. But they're not. Teachers would be making more money. Teachers would be making way more money. They're not. We're compensated completely differently. And this makes a lot of people angry. Because you say, man, I put in 20 hours. I put in 12 hours. I put in breaking my back. And this is all I'm making? And this is where it's, it's why, this is why we need to be taught how our financial system works. Because we're all a piece of this puzzle. But most of us are only consumers. We're never taught how to benefit from the way the economic system works. And so you have to be able to work smart instead of just working hard. And now the question is now, first, you have to be willing to work hard. Like I, I, when people tell me, hey, man, I, I want to start a business because I don't want to work that hard. I, I can't even talk to you. Like, like you it's can't. Gonna happen. It's a completely different language. You've got to obsess over something if you want it to do well. Yes. You have to be obsessive. And a business owner doesn't get to turn it off. 
you don't get to clock out at five and say, well, I'm done for the day. Like, I don't have <laughs> yeah, to worry about right. anything. Like, time to go home and chill and relax yeah. and just watch the money flow in. You've got to, it doesn't shut off. You're thinking nonstop about yeah. your employees and making sure they're taken care of about, am I going to be able to generate enough money to take, take care of them and the expenses and running new initiatives and yeah. launching your products and making those better and dealing with customer acquisition. Yeah. It never stops. I know my dad used to joke around. We had a talk the other day. My dad worked very hard and he joked around about me because he saw this article on the internet and he was like laughing. I was like, what's so funny? He was like, work-life balance. I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, look at this article, you young generation. People are asking for a work-life balance. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, there is no concept of a work-life balance when I came to this country. It was work. If I didn't work, I don't have money to feed you. Yeah. Right. And it's like, sometimes you got to be willing to put in that sacrifice. And obviously, look, we live a life and you want to, you know, you got to balance this, but sometimes you got to be imbalanced to have more balance. There's a season of life that right. you've got to be imbalanced in order to get to balance. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when I, like, I work a lot, but I don't work as much as I used to. Yes. And I have... You're getting comfortable, to, man. You're getting soft. I, a I'm little bit, man. I seriously <laughs> got to go back through something that's going to make me uncomfortable. Well, the economy might put you through yeah, that, so seriously, don't worry. I know. But if you're not disciplined with your pain, the world will bring pain to you. Uh, 100%. You're 100% right on that. But it's a matter of now understanding when is the sacrifice worthwhile and when are you going to be willing to do that? So it's now, okay, I got to be willing yes. to put in the work. Yes. The second thing is now, where am I putting that work? Now, some people are born with the entrepreneurial bug, entrepreneurial bug. Some people are not. Some people can't handle the risk. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Not everybody should operate a business. Not everybody should be an entrepreneur. Mm. I know the internet makes it seem like that's not the case. Look, it's, there's nothing wrong with working a job, okay? Just understand now what are the different ways that you can earn more money. Can you work to get a raise? Can you work to maybe change careers if you don't have that much uh, upside potential? Can you get new skills? Can you get pay new skills? More? A certificate? Can you can you do something to earn more money? And it's much more accessible on online now. Yeah. There are so many skills you can learn online that can help you earn more money maybe get a second job right if that's not the case for you maybe now you can create your own side hustle if you have an idea maybe that can become its own business the one thing that i would say about side hustles is a lot of mistakes the, the mistake that a lot of people make is you try to do too many things and then you end up doing nothing yes. right so it's it's focusing down on what is it that you want to do and working to scale that and really just being willing to learn and being willing to fail like if, if you have the discipline, you have the work ethic, you're willing to learn and you're willing to fail, there's really not much that can stop you because now you have the recipe to actually go out and make it happen. But it's very difficult and you're going to go through a lot mm -hmm. of tough times. And most people give up after the first or the second or the third. And, and that's where, you know, the people that keep standing are the ones that can then mm -hmm. have the chance to succeed, right? It, man. If you're not, I forget who said it. It might have been Kobe, but you can't beat somebody who doesn't stop getting up. That's true, man. Right? And it's just one of those things where you just got to keep coming back and keep trying, keep learning, and keep. It, man. And it goes back to the judgment, which then brings us now to how do you protect your protect money, that money, baby? Right? Because now, as you build more wealth, as you start to do more of these things, now you start to achieve more success. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to lose it. And now, you know, this is where the first thing I would say is taxes, because this is probably the most interesting thing mm. about this. 
It's tough, man. And as an attorney who spent a lot of time studying the tax code, what I can tell you is not all income is treated the same. Uh, in general, the IRS has three different categories of income. You have earned income or your ordinary income. This is the money you make from your job, your W-2 salary. You have your portfolio income. This is your investment income. So if I sell a stock for a profit, that is my portfolio income. And then you have passive income. This is the money you make from something like a rental property, uh, something that you're not operating, but it's generating you cash flow. Out of these three different types of income, the income that comes with the highest tax rates and the lowest tax write-offs, the lowest deductions, is your earned income, mm. your ordinary income, the money you make from your job. Now, again, this makes a lot of people upset and angry because they're like, wait, what? I'm working so hard to make my money. You're telling me that if I made this money from my investments, which doesn't require as much physical labor, where I can make even more money, I pay less in taxes? Yes. And again, we're never taught this. Mm. And that's the first frustrating part is the reason why people are upset is because they don't know how to take advantage of it. And you can't take advantage of something you don't understand. So the first step is now understanding, look, this is the rules. You can hate me for telling you, but I'm telling you what the rule book says. The IRS rule book says this. It's over 2,000 pages long, and all it really says is, here are the different categories of income. Here are the write-offs. Do you know where these write-offs apply? They don't apply for your W-2 income because most people are just taking the standard deduction. They apply for your investment income, your portfolio income, or your passive income. So now the question is, how do you optimize that? How do you take advantage of that? Because the IRS rule book it's a rule book. It's a guideline. Like it tells you what you can do and what you can't do. So now your goal is to understand this and say, huh, mm -hmm. based off of this rule book, I should be doing this or I should have been doing this. And this is where tax planning comes into play. If your accountant, your CPA, if you have one, um, if you have a business or invest in real estate, I 100% recommend you have one. Always have a good accountant on your side when you have uh, tax, when you need tax advice. But if all they're doing is filing your taxes, you are leaving a lot of money on the table. And that's where it becomes so important to understand that, you know, for many Americans, your taxes are your biggest expense because it's money that's taken out of your paycheck before you even get to see it. Mm -hmm. And now if you can understand how you can utilize certain things, and you talked about the real estate professional exemption. If you're investing in real estate, well, real estate has some of the biggest and best tax write-offs that our tax code has to offer. People like investing in real estate for three reasons. One, you get cash flow. Second, you own a hard asset because now you're taking your paper cash to a physical piece of bricks and windows and real estate land. and land. Yeah. And third, you get tax breaks. Mm -hmm. Real estate is one of the best tools out there to use a tax code because with real estate, you get paper write-offs, which means I can show the IRS, hey, I made $10,000 with a profit, but my taxable income is maybe zero, because I can show them a property is one year older. It's called depreciation. So I get to show the IRS, hey, my property is one year older, so I'm not gonna, I don't have any real taxable income, even though you have some money in the bank. Right. And that's gonna depend on now how valuable the property is. But now you can make money and pay zero dollars in taxes. In addition to that, you could potentially, there are some, there's a lot of restrictions on this, but if you lose money or lose money on paper, meaning you make a profit, you tell the IRS you lost money, Depending on how much money you make and how much money you lose, you could take some of this money, offset some of your job income. There's a lot of rules against this, mm -hmm. but you can do that. Then, if you sell your real estate property for a profit, small or big, you can use all that money, go buy another property, and pay $0 in tax today. Mm -hmm. 
It's called the 1031 exchange. So all these things are available, but you have to now understand that you have to want to understand it, then how do you do it? Now, the first issue that people have is, how am I supposed to invest in real estate? I can barely buy a home for myself. Right. <laughs> well, you have to plan for it. Yeah. Right. It's not something that happens overnight. You're going to have to work towards it. And if you can't find any property in your area, maybe you look in a different area. Second is, if real estate is completely out of the picture, either you tell yourself you can't do it or you don't want to do it, you don't have to. You can also invest in stocks and still get some of the tax advantages because now your portfolio income has lower tax rates. Mm. And so now you can invest in stocks. You can generate cash flow from stocks. You can pay less taxes. You might not have the same tax benefits as real estate, but you still get a lot of tax benefits. Mm -hmm. And you can start with, I mean, I like to say as little as $100, but literally you can start with as little as $1. There are platforms out there that will let you start with $1. But again, it starts with that education. The second thing when it comes to protecting, so first you got to understand the taxes. I would 100% recommend getting a good accountant. Second is protect yourself. If you have a business idea, protect yourself. Um, because the reality is there's people that want to come after you. People in America, you can sue anybody for anything. And we are the most litigious country in the world. I've seen this firsthand. Yes. And this is where now you want to protect yourself, protect your idea. So I'll give you a quick story because when I started the minority mindset, um, I know the value of trademarks. Uh, so I trademarked the name. It cost a little bit of money, but I trademarked the name Minority Mindset. A little bit after, I, I was a nobody. Like Minority Mindset was still a nobody at this time. But then I got these messages and then I got a potential lawsuit mm. against me because somebody claimed that they owned the rights to the word Minority Mindset. Mm. And I looked at why. It's because like, 10 years prior to me starting the Minority Mindset, this guy wrote one blog post mm. with the words Minority Mindset in it. Mm. So he's like, I own the rights to this name. And me and my attorneys looked at this and we're like, well, we have a federally registered trademark on the name Minority Mindset. So no, you, it, there was nothing that they could do. So you want to protect yourself. When people are looking at failure, one of the reasons I think failure is so daunting for people um, is because they think of and they think that a choice is binary. So I think there are two things that you need to do if you want to get out of failure mindset. First of all, you have to get out of this idea that you have one shot at glory. Ooh. Okay. So we fear failure because we think whatever decision we make is what Jeff Bezos calls a one-way door. I go through this door, there's no coming back. It's going to define me forever. It's going to define me forever, like, right? When Jeff Bezos in a shareholder letter uh, to Amazon shareholders said, very clearly said, most of the decisions we make at Amazon are two-way doors. You go through, it doesn't look out, you come back, mm. right? So I think that most people have the perception that failure is um, the result of a binary choice. You know, you make one choice, it fails or succeeds. Now, if you believe like I believe that actually between you and a reward is probably not one decision, but 30, 40, 100, does the first, should you really overweight the importance of the first decision? Mm, mm. I would say you should overweight your ability to keep choosing. If you can keep choosing, you will find a path. It may not be, you may not end up where you started, but you know, where you wanted when you started, but there will be a path. But that, like you have to dismiss this myth that failure is a bi bimodal, binary, one-way door. It isn't. It's just the first choice in a series of choices you will inevitably have to make. Yeah. So first of all, stop thinking about failure as like a one choice uh, circumstance. It's just not. 
Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this. Assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake calipers. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Then number two, and I'll say this, supposing the decision you're contemplating is in fact bigger, and it is a one-way door. I make it up. You mortgage your house, right. you're starting a company, like, you know, you can't take back the mortgage, you quit your day job, you have, go to zero salary, and you mortgage your house. Okay, we could agree that's a big risk. In that mode, I always say to people like, okay, well, if it's a big risk, then as opposed to planning for all the upside that's gonna happen, I said, plan for the failure mode. Plan for the failure mode in order to get yourself to act. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, okay. If something's really, you know, a big and scary risk, I want you to tell me the five choices you'd make after the choice. And then I bet that you will find two, three, four recovery paths. But actively think about that now. Park all of your imagining of the upside. Okay, that's great to get what I call your mm -hmm, FOMO going. Mm -hmm. You'll get really excited. Fear of missing out is like, you know, you want to act, you visualize the positive. But when you're trying to overcome failure, I'm like, visualize a failure, work it through, yes. understand all your contingencies, mm -hmm. and then you're pro probably far more likely to get into action. Because what you've done is reduce your feel of your failure. Yes. Because you can actually, you're actively imagining the choices after the choice when it fails. That's interesting you say that because I was interviewing a UFC fighter, uh, George St. Pierre. Yeah. And it was one of the greatest of all time. And he was talking, I think it was him or another UFC fighter that I heard, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, talking about how they train to be in the most uncomfortable situations. Yes. Like, I'm on my back, my arm is behind my back, I've got a hand here, and a guy's just punching me in the face. How do I get out of this? Yes, that's exactly right. How do right, I right? get out of it? How do I stay calm? How do I not, like, pass out? How do I, you know, if I'm in the worst position possible, like, every bad position I train for, yes. and I train to get out of it. Yeah. So that exactly. when it does happen, yes. I'm like, this sucks and it's uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. I know I can get out of it. Yeah. 
And if I can just get back on my feet and stand up again, then I can take the yeah, next step. Yeah, right, exactly. And then, and and I think for people who are like, I fail. Let's say you pick a new job and you left your old job and you cut your ties mm-hmm. and it fails. I'm like, okay, what that? What then? So play yeah. through. Okay, you lose your relationship. You lose your kid. Everything you lose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then you're like, okay, well, then what would you do? Yeah. Because I think that on small failures, it's enough to know that if you act once. You still have ten more choices yes. on something that is like truly a one-way door. There are few, very few decisions that truly you can't come back from. And those things, you're like, okay, then what are my contingencies? Right. What do I do? So I believe that like this risk-taking equation guides all of all of us, which is fear of fear of missing out is worn with fear of failure. Whichever one is like, you know, fear of missing out is greater than fear of failure. Mm-hmm. You'll take action if fear of failure is greater than fear of missing out. You won't. But most people only want to work one side of the equation, which is think about the positive. Right. And I'm like. No, you got to think about both. Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah. One of my coaches, uh, Chris Lee, years ago, probably like seven years ago, I had been training for years already to overcome the fear of public speaking. And I, and oh, been, really? And I'd been speaking for, I don't know, at this point, 10 years yes. professionally. And I'd made good money on stages yes, and, and, and spoken in front of 20,000 people. And I remember saying to him, I was like, gosh, I don't know why, but I still feel like kind of scared and nervous. Yes. Like the day before I yeah. go on. <laughs> and... I don't know why. And I remember calling him like hours before and I go, I don't know why I'm still nervous mm-hmm. and a little afraid. Mm-hmm. And he said, because one of the things is you're afraid of how you're going to look. Mm-hmm. You're afraid of like being embarrassed or not like saying the right thing or messing up. You're still afraid of that mm-hmm. as opposed to being of service to the audience and knowing you're going to mess. Not, it's right. not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And he put me through an exercise like, what, well, like a what if or what happens next exercise. Just go, okay, what if you, what if you forget your words? What if you forget yeah. that story? Then what? Then what? Then what? And you just go, then, then what? what? I call that go, the choice after the choice. Then what? Well, then, then what? I'll be then like what? embarrassed. Well, then what? Well, then, uh, what's the worst could happen? Uh, I don't know. Then I just walk off stage and you know, I yeah. forget the whole thing. And then what? And then what? And he's like, well, everyone laughs at me. Okay. And then what? And then I don't want to come out for a week because I'm yeah. so embarrassed. And then what? And it's like eventually you, you're like, okay, I'm down here and I, <laughs> I'll pick myself back up and I'll be okay yeah. and I'll, you know, I'll start again. Yeah, so. I think that that's sort of the point. Like the then what, then what, then what. We sort of have trained ourselves to think that it has to be, you know, that it, like I said, it's bimodal. I'm like, yeah. it's not bimodal. It's like what will happen is you'll discover the five choice after choice. So think those through now. Yes. Because in there is comfort. <sighs> it's so good. It's so good. What is the thing that you're most proud of most people don't know about you? What I'm most proud of career-wise, and then I think what, yes. what I'm most proud of people, what I'm most proud of career-wise is I have had a career of working with exceptionally talented people where I feel like I got to be part of accelerating their journey. That mm. is what I'm most proud of. Like, I'll look back That's on cool. my life and say, regardless of the companies or what, I like, I just look, I always say to people, do you know how amazing it is to work with tribes of great people who are, by and large, great human beings That's as nice. well? And then be like, oh, yeah, I will look at my journey and be like, I got to intersect with these amazing people, and maybe for a few of them, or hopefully some n- a meaningful number of them, I was an accelerant. So that's what I'm most proud of, kind of business-wise. What am I most proud of that people wouldn't know about me? Um, maybe that I think I wake up every day, both fully empowered and also pretty clear that uh, I'm like pretty far from the center of the universe. Like mm. I'm, I'm proud of the fact <laughs> that I think that most people would think that I wake up thinking I sort of must rule the roost. And most days I'm like, no, I wake up pretty empowered, but I, I'm really grounded and clear that, you know, life is a blessing. Mm. I'm here for a reason. Mm-hmm. I'm living my impact. Um, the world is a much, much bigger place than just me. Mm-hmm. Um, yet I feel very stable within it. Like yeah. I, 
I, I like I, I I don't feel like many things. I don't nothing's going to shake me. Yeah, that's yeah, great. because I have a sense for why I'm here and what I'm meant to do without thinking that it's all about me. Right. So I, I'm proud of that. That's I'm cool. I'm proud of that. Like, yeah, that's great. I'm like I'm good with it. That's great. Uh, the book is about risks, and you say most things won't shake you, mm-hmm. but when people take big risks, sometimes it shakes them a lot. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest myths around risk taking um, that we tell ourselves? Yeah, and by the way, of course. You read the book, you'll know that many risks I took shook me, which yeah. is the whole reason for writing the book. Because I'm like, oh, don't let it shake you. This is what happened to me. So I can't say I've never been shaken yeah, by risk. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I keep coming back to that singular point. Like, I know it sounds so simple, but it is the point of the entire freaking book. The book is about how, but the point of the book is about, you know, let go of this myth of the single choice. Mm. Stop believing that outcomes are binary that risk and reward is a singer, singular linear game. Like, hey, I take a big risk, I get a big reward. You know, or I have an epic fail. Like, it's just not like that. Yeah, it's either I win big or I lose it all. Exactly. That is this bimodal issue. I think that is the biggest myth, myth around risk taking. And it's the whole reason I wrote the book. I'm like, you have to keep choosing. Stop overweighting the first choice. Mm. You know, if you are willing to keep choosing, there are, you know, a, a thousand... Um, a thousand choices between you and success. And I cannot promise you that the success you'll get at the end is the one you originally thought. It may or may not be. Uh, but I can tell you that if you keep aiming for impact in every single choice, cumulatively, you will have an outsized career and you uh, will have an outsized life. What is the one thing, the main thing that you feel from all the interviews you've done that makes great entrepreneurs great? There's a bunch of answers to that question, and, and some of them are predictable, like resilience or a strong sense of optimism, you know, um, the ability to get back up when you get knocked down. And those are all true. Like, you have to have that. But the one thing, the, like, because not every person I've interviewed has gone to college or is educated. Uh-huh. They're not all book smart. Um, they're not all charismatic. They're not, you know, they're different. They're, they're like us, right? But the one thing that, that binds every person I interview is they've all, they all either have naturally or have learned to develop the ability to withstand rejection, to accept, to basically accept that lots of people are going to say no and keep kind of grinding through it. That's, it's one of the hardest things is to deal with rejection, deal with people judging you deal with people saying that like this is bad this is horrible this isn't going to work it's because you want that confirmation we want yes. confirmation when we're doing yes. something of like yes you're amazing go do it but when everyone's saying no and you can go through it because at some point great entrepreneurs are going to get people to say no yes and at some you've got to learn how to get through it i interviewed this guy topio otana um a couple weeks ago and he founded this company called Calendly. Have you ever used Calendly? It's really great. I mean, everyone po- for podcast interviews, it's like all we do is schedule right, calendars. Yeah. So he started this, I don't know, like six or seven years ago. And um, his first job while he was a college student was selling ADT home monitoring services door to door. Right. So he's in Athens, Georgia. And he's this kid who's from Nigeria. He came to the U.S. when he was 16. And he's going door to door in Athens, Georgia, selling um, – you know, knocking on doors, trying to sell people home monitoring systems. And I said to him, I said, Tope, I said, didn't you ever get discouraged with all those doors slamming in your face? Didn't you get tired of hearing people saying like, no soliciting? And he said, no, because I knew that, that there was a hit rate. And, you know, eventually 
uh, one of those doors would open and the person would say yes, and I would make a, a commission on that sale. And that was more money than I ever had in my life. So it was fine. I mean, right. it's a similar story with Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx. Mm -hmm. Like she sold fax machines door to door. It was, she describes it as torture, you know. She, but it steeled her when it came time to starting her business. Like she had to find a textile manufacturer that was willing to make a prototype of these undergarments that no one had ever seen before. And all of these textile plants said no until one finally said yes. But she was ready for that process because she had gone through like rejection exposure therapy. Exactly. Yeah. It, like she had a PhD in rejection for, I think it was six or seven years she was doing door to door. Yeah. And do you think it's harder for, uh, to get successful or to stay successful as entrepreneurs? Is it easier to like, okay, I made something work with this was success or is it easier once you get there to maintain? It's a great question. I mean, I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but here, here's what I would say. I think getting to a place where you have found some success, it's sort of like finding lift. It's like when an airplane, um, you know, takes lift and then, mm -hmm. and then, you know, you hit cruising altitude at 35,000 feet and there will be turbulence. But I think that in general, in my experience, um, I, I think once you have achieved some level of success, it's easier to build on that because people have seen you succeed in some fashion or form. Like, like, what I do, what you do. I mean, 25 years ago when I started out on radio before it was podcasting, I couldn't get on the air. Why would somebody give me a chance? You know, nice. I had no track record. I had no, no one knew who I was. Nobody knew if I was any good. And I sucked, by the way. Right. That's how it is. You suck when you start. You suck and then you suck less and then a little less and a little less. But, you know, once I started to go on air, it was like that, that domino falls. And other people was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can do a story or, or sure, you, we'll, we'll take your, your, your pitch. And it's the same thing with, I think, with entrepreneurship, which is once you, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to, if you start a billion, like, is Kevin Systrom going to be able to found another billion dollar Instagram right. company? Probably not. I mean, that, but, it, but will he continue to be successful in any endeavor he does? Yeah, and he'll also have some failures. But, you know, he has that sort of, and most entrepreneurs who have, who have achieved something, who've created something and built something, even things that have failed, they have that like, that lift, you know, that keeps yeah. them, keeps them flying. And do you think anyone could be a thriving, successful entrepreneur? I mean, like sustainably making money and having a business with customers. Do you think it's possible for anyone or some of us just not wired? Because when I was a kid growing up, I was never into baseball cards. I didn't do the lemonade stand thing. I, I never made any money. I was like an athlete and yeah. I didn't know the concept of here's a value, here's a skill, go yeah. sell it, try to get some money. I didn't know that concept until I was 25 and I needed to make money until it was a necessity and there was yeah. no other way. And 2008 happened, there was no jobs. And I was like, well, I got to figure out what I'm going to do to survive. Yeah. Is it a thing that people can learn? Or is it kind of you either got or you don't? I'm a thousand percent believer that virtually every skill that entrepreneurs have are acquired. Now, there are some people, like Mark Cuban is a good example of just a freak of nature. Like when he was in his teens, he read a book called How to Retire at Age 35, okay? Um, he wanted to become, a, like he was determined to become a millionaire by age 30. He went, he picked a college program where he could graduate in three years to save mm -hmm. money. He instantly went to Dallas 
because he thought there were opportunities there. He got a job bartending at night because he knew it would stuff his pockets with tips. And in the daytime, he started selling computer software. I mean, he was a millionaire by age 30. Like he, but he's a freak of nature, right, in that sense. I think most entrepreneurs acquire these skills over time. I mean, let's go back to rejection for a moment. Mm-hmm. So some people are just naturally easier with it, right? Like you, you remember, you probably knew like that guy in high school who would just ask a hundred people out on dates and he wouldn't care if 99 of them said no, because he knew that one would eventually say yes, right? Yeah. Now I was not that kid. You might not have been that. <laughs> I was not kid. that kid. I was terrified of girls. I was terrified, right? I was terrified of, the, of people saying like, no. Yeah. So it's sort of a, a weird <laughs> kind of example, but you know, the, the idea of going door to door to sell something or pitching people on your product, going to, to investors, it's really hard. It requires the ability to hear no and to keep fighting. And, you know, one of the insights that I gained from, that I learned from the show is just in this weird, it's like this weird thing that's happened, which is that I have ended up interviewing a significant number of Mormon entrepreneurs, okay? Now, Mormons are a tiny percentage of the American population, like 2%, okay? Um, And they have a pretty significantly high rate of entrepreneurship in in their community, in their culture, and also business success. So what is it that they're doing differently? Well, they're doing something very different than pretty much every other population in America. They're like door-to-door salesmen. They send their 18-year-olds to a country around the world, and they say, go live somewhere for two years and get as many converts as you can. You're going to have to knock on a 1,000 doors to get five, 10 people to accept the Book of Mormon. And you have to learn the new language and speak a different language out of your comfort zone. Perfectly. And you've got to pay your own way. And by the way, you have to be polite and gracious and friendly. You can't be like, why are you slamming the door in my face? Like you are a Mormon missionary. You are, you're representing the church. Like you've got to be really polite and friendly and kind. So those kids go abroad for two years. They come back to the US, Utah, or wherever. They start college. They're way more equipped than your average 21-year-old to start their lives and also to start a business. And it's a story that I've heard from David Neeleman, the founder of JetBlue, it's a story, you know, I've heard from Joel Clark, the founder of Kodiak Cakes, the, you know, the protein powder pancakes. He got back from his mission in Australia and he started this company, this business. He, he, he had no fear of going door to door to sell pancake cakes. And so it's, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody become a Mormon. I'm saying that, what I'm saying is that it's a really interesting kind of case study. You know, I don't think the church deliberately, you know, setting its, its young people up to be entrepreneurs, but it's setting them up to be independent. And, um, and so that's a learned skill. I mean, Mormons are not more preternaturally more gifted in, in rejection of the ability to withstand rejection. They just had two years of it. So they're better at it. And I think all of us can kind of replicate that in a, in a sense. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's episode with all the important links. And if you want weekly exclusive bonus episodes with me personally, as well as ad-free listening, then make sure to subscribe to our Greatness Plus channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Share this with a friend on social media and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Let me know what you enjoyed about this episode episode in that review. I really love hearing feedback from you and it helps us figure out how we can support and serve you moving forward. And I want to remind you if no one has told you lately that you are loved, you are worthy, 
and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great.